If everyone would turn to First uh, Samuel chapter three this morning, I'll be reading the entirety of the chapter. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling out, calling as other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever, for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called to Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, Here I am. Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me, of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what he seems good to him. As Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. We're going to ask God's blessing upon his word this morning. This is his word. And I pray we've come and we've gathered together to not only worship in song, exalt his name, uh, participate together as a body in the Lord's Supper, remembering what Christ did for us at the cross. Also remembering who it is we're called to be serving in these days. Uh, God, through his son, gave his life for us gave his life for the church of which we are a part this morning. Uh, we have opportunity right now to have the word open before us. And I pray that it's, a, it's, it's deemed an honor and a privilege for us to do so. So with that in mind, we're going to pray. And we're going to look to the Lord and his word to teach us this morning. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful for yet another day and another opportunity that you've given to us to open your word, to have your word here, right here before us. Father, we thank you that this is your revealed word of truth. 
And we're privileged to hear from it once again today. In fact, every time, Lord, we have opportunity to open the pages of Scripture, we have an opportunity to hear from you. And so, Lord, we thank you for that privilege. We're reminded that in the beginning you spoke and the entire world came to be through your voice. The Bible speaks your voice, speaks your words, words that I pray we desire to take in today, to carry with us today, to deliver out today. Father, I ask that you would pour your words into us, that we might be more like your son. It's been mentioned already this morning, but that's the hope, that your word in us, we would become more like your son. And so help us, Lord, we ask that you would help us to readily receive your words as you speak. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have here a few visuals this morning, hoping that it will help and not uh, distract. That's not the point of an illustration or a visual. But as you, uh, as you look here and you see, this is a hard plastic uh, conduit, right? Um, about five foot in length. And as, if we were to uh, consider for a moment what this is and how this is going to be used in terms of what we're talking about, just a simple definition. Thinking of a, a protective casing that allows the transfer of a substance to freely flow from point A to point B. Now, in this case, if, uh, if we had here... Avery, you want to grab this? Just as an example here of what we're talking about. So, point A is going to be the point at which he pours this in. We might get a little water on the floor. We'll, get, we'll take care of it later. And that's okay. Go ahead and pour it in there. Okay. So we go from point A to point B. It, it, it receives it. It carries it along. It delivers it. Okay? I'm not so concerned about making something out of the bucket. The bucket's just there to catch the water. Okay? I'm more concerned with the role and the purpose of this conduit. Okay? So as we think about... Hang here for just a second, please. God is pouring into us, and we are his chosen conduit, vessels, and his word that comes in is intended to find its way out to witness to others. Really what's needed and what's called for here is a clear passage for the word of God. A clear passageway. In fact, God, when he speaks, when he pours his word into us, it's absolutely vital that we are receptive to those words coming in. As we'll see, there's, there's something here to be said about the conduit as a receiver of God's word, the conduit as a carrier, a transporter, if you will, of God's word, a, a, a conduit as a deliverer, a messenger of God's word. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking in particular, about God and His Word. And the Bible says that God's Word is pure. 
So what we know to be true about God's word is God's word is never the problem. It's perfect all the time. It's pure. So what is the problem? The conduit oftentimes, in fact, every time, is the problem. The conduit. And one of the ways that the conduit can be a problem is the availability factor. If you were to fill up just a little bit more, have a little more water in there. The availability factor, um, for instance, a Sunday morning, Lord's house. You know you're going to hear the word of God. And I would ask, are you available? Are you an available conduit? You know that the word of God is going to be preached You know you're going to hear the word of God. And for some of us, instead of willingly leaning toward that word, we are finding all kinds of ways and reasons to avoid receiving that word. For some of us, we know that receiving the word will actually convict us of our current actions. So availability would be a good question. Are we an available conduit? But as we think about a second way, we think about a a lukewarm conduit. Pour a little bit in right there, if you will. Just a little bit through there. Good, good. And if I was just to kind of balance this, you know, do you notice that currently there's no water coming out the other end? You know, it's just kind of, it's just kind of hanging in there. You know, maybe dripping out a little bit here, there, a little here, there. God's word comes in. Maybe every now and then it comes trickling out. Or maybe it just kind of settles in there a little bit. We've become pretty lukewarm, pretty apathetic. I ask, is that the kind of conduit that the Lord would desire of us? A lukewarm one. One that maybe gets the word in, receives the word, but it doesn't really do a whole lot once it gets in. Or what about a clogged? If I was just simply to put my hand here and you were to take a a glass of water again, you got some water readily available, go ahead and pour it in there. Go ahead and pour it in there. Go ahead. Go ahead and pour it in there. Okay, look, oh, it's not getting in. You can stop now. It's not getting in. It's clogged. There's something blocking the way. Do you realize that for many of us, as we think about ourselves, our vessels, conduit, the Bible talks about things that choke out the word, right? Remember that? The seed, the sower. Is there something in your life right now that's blocking God's word from coming? If, if so, it might be like the seed sown on the hard path. You just don't want God's word in. Or maybe, let's try this one, Avery. Go ahead and pour a little bit in there. Go ahead, a little more. Go ahead, a little more. I might be able to hold a little more. All right, good. You can put your hand on the other end there. Yeah, this is not a perfect example. But let's just say, for example, sake here, uh, this is the person who's full already. God's word's gotten in there, and now it's full, full of right. We, we walk around as, as a uh, uh, conduit, and believing that, God, um, I'm full already. I've got everything I need. I, I've had millions of sermons already delivered to me. I already have heard this passage of scripture. I already know about Samuel when he was a little boy. I really don't need to hear this one. Click, click, and we turn off because we think we've got enough already. dangerous place to be when we think we've had enough 
I've had enough God. I've had enough church. I've had enough of his word. I've got enough already. I don't need any more. Thank you. That's a dangerous place to be. Finally, go ahead and get a good, good amount in here. Just pour it. What, what, what the hope is, is that we are free-flowing conduits of God's Word. That when God's Word comes in, it's free-flowing. We are readily receiving it, we are carrying it, and we are letting other people know this Word. Thank you, you can take a seat. Free-flowing. Are you desiring to make yourself available to receive God's word? Are you making preparations to be, here's a biblical terminology, are you making preparations to be useful and yielded to the master? By the way, that comes from 2 Timothy 2.22. Now when you read about Samuel in the Bible, you're seeing a man whose life is useful and yielded to God. Samuel's life seems to have this natural bent toward God's word. And he exhibits a faith in God, which was sorely lacking during the era of history in the life of God's people. So as I was thinking about this passage, and by the way, the passage that we're looking at is not just Samuel 3. I had to select a passage for Chris to read this morning. I didn't want him to read chapters 1 through 25. But really, that's the scope of Samuel's life. And we think about the big idea of Samuel, and Samuel is, here's what I've labeled for Samuel from the Word. Samuel is God's chosen conduit through whom the Word of God flows freely to a nation Desperately in need of hearing God's word. Samuel is God's chosen conduit through whom God's word freely flows to a nation, in this case Israel, who desperately need to hear the word of God. Samuel makes himself available to God. He's readily receiving what God has to say. He's a carrier of the word. Uh, He's a prophet, right? He's a judge. He's a priest. He plays a lot of these roles. He plays a very unique role in the scripture. Samuel is a messenger of the word. Samuel is God's chosen conduit for disseminating to Israel the word of God. His life serves as a free-flowing conduit. I want you to think about that this morning. Maybe ask yourself here up front, is my life a free-flowing conduit for God's purposes? We read his account in the scriptures, and there's a lot to like about Samuel, isn't there? I mean, much to glean from the positive as opposed to last week when we were looking at Samson. Not a knock on Samson, it's just the reality, it's the truth. We tend to look at Samuel and see a lot more positives. Samuel was imperfect, like you and me. And and he didn't always get things right. And the Bible is not silent on this at all. But the majority of the text on Samuel is a joy to behold. A man of humility, yieldedness to the things of God, submission, a servant, 
an available conduit through whom the word of God freely flowed at a time when the nation of Israel was spiritually dry. One writer said that God is never at a loss for suitable instruments. They are always ready when work has to be done. God always has a way of finding suitable instruments for his work to carry out, doesn't he? Samuel is one of those. He's God's suitable instrument during this time in Israel's history. God shapes this young man and he calls him in his early days. And really, in many ways, this segues into the first teaching principle from the biblical text. The first teaching principle that I'd like to bring. And I want to put this up here so that you can have this. I know from time to time, it's hard to get everything down. I try to repeat it, but... This is just more or less so you can have what we're talking about here. Um, But what we're going to see here is that God is looking at availability, not age. Availability, not age. And this is seen pretty clearly in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Availability, not age. Scottish preacher William Blakey in his insightful commentary on 1 Samuel. I love what he says here. He he writes these words about Samuel in his early years. Listen to this. He says, there were in Samuel, he's describing this in Samuel, there were no wayward impulses to subdue. No hankerings after worldly freedom and worldly enjoyment. There was no necessity for coercive measures, either to restrain him from outbursts of frivolity or to compel him to diligence and regularity in his calling. From the first, he looked with solemn awe and interest, holy interest that is, in all that related to the worship of God. That to him was the duty above all other duties, the privilege above all other privileges. God to Samuel was not a mere idea, an abstraction, representing merely the services of religion. God was a reality, a personality, a being who dealt very closely with men and with whom they were called to deal very closely to. Great description of the life of Samuel in his early years. Samuel was an available conduit through whom the word of God freely flowed. This young man, Samuel, comes on the scene through the diligent prayers of his mother, Hannah, chapter 1. In verses 27 and 28, we read these words. For this child, these are Hannah, Hannah's words. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted to me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord... As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And so they worshipped the Lord there. As a young child, Samuel is lent to the Lord. His mom gives him over to the Lord all his days. Remember, Hannah was barren. And she prays to God, asking for a son, that if she's granted a son, that she would then give him to the Lord all of his days. It's quite a prayer. As a young child, Samuel is lent to the Lord and he's left at the tabernacle. We see in the text where he stays with Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, not great company. 
We see in Samuel 2 verse 18, Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. In Samuel 2.21, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. In Samuel 2.26, the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. And then we get to chapter 3 verse 1. It says, now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. God called Samuel during the night while a boy. He's calling him to be the conduit. He's calling him to be the conduit through whom God's word would flow freely to a nation that needed to hear. Now, there's a few difficulties that line the way here with God calling young Samuel. First of all, Samuel is in the midst of a a dry and parched land spiritually, right? We've talked about that. Chapter 3, verse 1 says that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. We also see that Samuel here in the text, is the go-to person for God at this point in history, not Eli. In fact, in chapter 2, if you read your Bible, in chapter 2, God's already talked to Eli. He's already had a pretty serious, sober word with Eli about what's to come. But Samuel is the one God goes to. Instead of speaking through the priest at this point, God elects to speak through the boy, Samuel. God chooses to speak through Samuel. As a boy, I want us to understand that and get that. Inexperienced, yes. Available to God, yes. Bent toward the things of God, desiring to hear from God, yes. And God calls him into service. Look what the text says. Chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, starting in verse 19. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. Let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. How did he reveal himself to Samuel? By the word of the Lord. How does he reveal himself to you, friends? By the word of the Lord. Spirit working through that word. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. See how that worked? He was an available conduit. It was poured out. The word of God was poured out to a nation. The word of the Lord to Samuel became the word of the Lord communicated to Israel. And God chose a boy to speak through. Listen, young men, this is not something to sleep over. God chose a boy to work through. And he chooses girls as well to work through. It's his way. In fact, he chooses available conduits. I think there's a great word here for you young men and young women, especially. As I look around the room, do you know that the majority of people in here are young men and young women? Majority of you in here are young people. This, This is so applicable to you. I really want you to get this. The church of Jesus Christ is not a building, it's a people. 
Amen? It's people. And God wants to use his people to accomplish his purposes here on earth. And some of you might be thinking here this morning that church is for the big people. It's where dad and mom are involved and I just sit quietly until the bell rings for lunch. Well, God's word says something different, friends. The life of Samuel ought to be an encouragement to you. God chooses to speak through the boy, Samuel. As a child, he was trained and he was nurtured in the ways of the Lord. Hannah was a very godly mother. But Samuel, listen, but Samuel developed some holy inclinations as a child. Holiness to Samuel wasn't for the older people. Holiness was something to pursue right from the beginning. He wasn't concerned about having worldly fun, but instead he had a laser focus on training himself in godliness. Samuel was an available conduit, ready to be used by God. Samuel had prepared his heart and mind to seek the Lord. And God is seen in chapter 3, putting him into service. You see, God knows the heart, doesn't he? God knows the heart. He knows when you're ready. He, He can tell if you are available for his service or not. God cannot be deceived, the Bible says. He knows. Listen, God never calls a perfect conduit into his service. Never. But he does call available ones. When the water of God pours into you, how is it received? Do you shy away from it? Do you clog it up? I've had enough, Lord. Thank you. Don't need any more. Does it come in and just kind of settle? Is it sort of lukewarm in you? Do you do something with it? Or do you profane his name by your inattention to the word that gets poured into you? This is God's word. Is there something clogging the word? From pouring in. Is there a desire to be a free-flowing conduit of God's word? You see, God is looking at availability. He's not looking at age. I was reminded of this with Paul and young Timothy. As Paul is writing 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers. Right? In word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. The only way you can be such an example is by welcoming God's words each time you have opportunity to hear them. Making yourself available to hear his words. When you open the pages of scripture, I want you to think about the water of God's word pouring into you, flowing freely through you. And I want you to think about how you can be sending this word of God onto others as well. God is looking at availability, not age. You see, because if age was a problem for God, he never would have used Mary. He never would have used Gideon. 
He never would have used David. He never would have used Daniel or his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He never would have used Timothy. He never would have used that little boy who had the fish and the loaves of bread. Never would have used Esther. Never would have used Solomon who said, I am a little child in Kings 3, 7, coming before the Lord. Never would have used Jehoshaphat who was 35 when he became king. That's pretty young. Never would have used Hezekiah, who was 25 when he became king. Never, ever would have used Josiah, who was 8 when he became king. If age was a problem for God, he never would have used Samuel. But Samuel, at an early age, is exercising himself in godliness. Samuel is God's chosen conduit through whom God's words are going to freely flow. Okay, so here's the second principle. Here's the second principle. God not only looks at availability, not age, but he looks at repentance. And, and repentance, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the now, um, not your history, which is the past. Okay? Uh, reference point, 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over to 7, chapter 7. God looks at repentance in the now and not your history in the past. And what we need to understand here is that the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. And what began as a big celebration for the Philistines turned into a disaster as the Lord inflicts punishment of all kinds upon the holders of the Ark. Uh, the Ark really becomes a hot potato in many ways. I, I, they find out something happens to them and they don't want it and they pass it along. And they pass it along. And they pass it along. And then it goes back to the people of God. And someone thinks it's a great idea to look inside the Ark of God. And God destroys some of the people um, of Beth Shemesh. And, and he punishes them, striking them dead. The Ark then gets passed along to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim. This is the end of chapter 6. They bring it to the home of Abinadab. And they consecrate Eleazar his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And that's the context as you get to chapter 7, verse 1. Look at verse 2. Will you look at this? So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. That's an understatement. It was there 20 years. How long was it there? 20 years. How many of you are under 20? Raise your hand high. I want to see. How many are under 20? A lot of you are under 20 in here. A good number, a good percentage of you. 20 years. The ark was resting in Kirjath-Jerim in Abinadab's home for 20 years. Now, we've got to remember something. The ark of God was deemed the sign and symbol of God's presence, wasn't it? 20 years of dryness. And, and it's just passed over almost like a, just, almost like a, I think of, of Genesis chapter 1 when God says, oh yeah, I made all the stars too. <laughs> Whoa, the, all the stars? But it's just one little sentence. Here's one little sentence. For 20 years, dryness. You ever been parched in need of a drink of water, Anybody? Anybody ever been thirsty? Real, real thirsty? Yeah. Spiritually speaking, the people of Israel were dry. 
The ark was housed in Abinadab's home for 20 years. The sign and symbol of God's presence with them was just hanging out in Abinadab's home for 20 years. 20 years go by and we're led to believe there's barrenness in the land. It takes 20 years before the people of God are seen broken before God. Look at 1 Samuel 7, 3. It says, after the house of Israel lamented, Samuel speaks to the house of Israel. Listen to what he says. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise, right? That's what the Bible tells us. God is more concerned about your repentant heart in these present days than he is about your rebellious heart in the past, your history. See, God can use a repentant heart, church. A repentant heart makes himself wholeheartedly available to God. A repentant heart confesses sin and acknowledges that the sin is against God. In fact, look at chapter 7, verse 6. They gather together at Mizpah. They draw water, pour it out before the Lord, a drink offering before the Lord. They fasted before the Lord that day. And here's what they said. We have sinned against the Lord. Look what happens in the text. The Philistines show up. Remember, the Philistines are the ones ruling over Israel at this time. The Philistines show up as they gather at Mizpah. And they're preparing to war with Israel. Note, as they are crying out to the Lord. Samuel offers a sacrifice and cries out to God for Israel. We see that in verse 9 of chapter 7. He offers a sacrifice, cries out to God for Israel. He's interceding for Israel. And the text says in verse 9, the Lord answered him. And the Lord answered him. How did the Lord answer him? In thunder, the Lord answered Samuel. And he sent the Philistines packing. Israel chases them down, defeats them, secures their land, restores some of their old boundary markers that had previously been taken by the Philistines. God answers the prayers of his people and he provides them with peace for a time. And in recognition of what God did for Israel, Samuel sets up this memorial stone. He names it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. And saying, thus far has the Lord helped us. You know, I'm reminded of those 20 years of spiritual depression in the lives of the people. The people cry out to God. Samuel cries out to God for Israel. And the Lord delivers them out from under the Philistine rule. But for a time, as we keep reading, we see that they come back in the scene when Saul shows up. God answers the prayers of a people whose hearts are turned toward him. A people who are desperate for his help. A people who long for God's presence in their lives. They're weary of the, of the barren wilderness and they cry out to God. You see, God looks at repentant hearts. A people who return to him with all of their hearts. People who are quick to get rid of their idols and get rid of their gods. And get rid of their trinkets and their gadgets and the snares that so easily entangle them. People who prepare their hearts for the Lord and are set on serving God only. God elsewhere says, you shall have no other gods before me. 
when he hears the cries of his people, he sees repentant hearts. He does not, listen, he does not turn back. He's not finished with you. He doesn't plug his ears to your cry. Praise God, he doesn't do that. He's not going to bring up your history. He's not going to discuss all the spiritually barren years of your life and point out your faults and nag you. God will deliver. He will thunder down on your enemies and will fight for you as well. And you might be sitting there thinking, how do you know, Steve? How do you know? You don't know my situation. Here's what I know. I know that we serve a God who's Ebenezer, who's a God of help. He's a God of refuge. He's our rock and he's our sure defense. He's our fortress and our strong tower. He's mighty to save. He's ready to deliver. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. The Bible tells us all these things. He's always right on time. This is the God we serve through Jesus Christ. Amen? Anybody know this God? That's who we serve. So Samuel. Samuel is God's chosen conduit. I love this. Through whom God's word is flowing freely to the nation of Israel. And God is using Samuel to call his people back to himself. Powerful. Talk about, talk about a purpose for one's life. Calling a nation, not, not a spouse, not a household, not even a church, a nation, calling them back to God. He uses Samuel to remind the people of God's presence. And he sets up this stone of remembrance as if to say, hey, look, we're not going another 20 years living apart from God. We're not going to go another 20 years. We're not going to live in a dry spiritual land any longer. We're going to remember what God's done for us. We're going to make it a habit to walk in His ways. And so the stone is a memorial of remembrance that the nation would be able to mark God's power and presence in their midst. Samuel is an available conduit, drawing a nation to the very presence of God. I love this. It's almost like he's saying to the nation, look what God did. Isn't God good? Our God is a sure rock in a time of need. The stone was intended to magnify the name of God. The stone was a call to remembrance of the mighty power of God at work through a repentant heart. You see, God looks at availability, and he also looks at repentance. What else do we gain from the life of Samuel? There's a third thing. He looks at sin as an affront to him, not to us. An affront to him, not to us. We'll reference point that in Samuel chapter 8. Samuel chapter 8. Just follow with me in your Bible. It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes, perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. 
Push pause for just a moment. Imagine leading a nation through many years. And now you're getting older and your sons are leading alongside you as you are in your later years. And the people come and they tell you a few things. First of all, they tell you you're old. Secondly, they tell you your sons don't walk in your ways. That's code for your sons are ungodly. Your sons are perverse. Your sons are wicked. Your sons are ungodly. Third, we want a king like all the other nations. It's hard to hear that and not come away with some measure of hurt feelings. Amen? Hard to listen to those words about his sons not walking in his ways. Dads? When someone talks to you about your sons or about your daughters and what they're not doing, it hurts. It hurts. It's pretty intimate there. It touches close to home. It's hard to learn that this nation who had desired to obey the Lord in chapter 7 now wants a new leader in chapter 8. Somehow God no longer is sufficient. I love what Samuel does here. In the midst of hearing these difficult words, look what Samuel does. The end of verse 6. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. We can underline that one. This is so instructive. Samuel prayed to the Lord. And what comes right after that is instructive as well. Listen to what God says to Samuel. Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, Samuel. For they have not rejected you, But they've rejected me that I should not reign over them. Samuel, give them what they're asking, for their sin is against me. They've rejected me as the one leading them. And you know, I was reminded here as I'm reading this about how sometimes we are quick to wallow in our own pity. We can turn bitter when others speak words that hurt I think an important lesson for us here is to remember that sin is first and foremost an affront to God, not to us. You see, when our first inclination is is to register how this impacts us, how these words may hurt us, we miss the bigger picture of what God thinks about sin. When someone sins against you in word or in deed... How often are you grieved? Listen, how often are you grieved by its impact against God? Do you stop to consider how God views this sin? Or when you sin against someone else in word or deed, you need to understand that God is the primary party that you sin against. All sin is against God. Sin is an affront to a holy God. David says, against you and you only have I sinned in that repentant Psalm 51. You see, one of the big reasons I believe our nation is in the state that it's in has to do with this point under discussion. We don't think a whole lot, if any, about the effect of our sin. We rarely consider what God thinks about our sins. We are oftentimes too busy holding grudges or sprouting bitterness when someone sins against us that we fail to remember how it must grieve our holy God. And that is the reason, church, to soak in God's word. 
to always be an available conduit for his words coming in to receive what he has to say and carry around in us what he's spoken and speak to others what he's taught us. See, God's word in us, written on our hearts, treasured in our minds, we hide them inside, the Bible says, so that we might not, what? Sin against it. We don't want to sin against him. See, his word in us helps us to mortify the flesh. The flesh wants to win. There's a battle being waged. His word in us enables us to respond in a godly fashion when the evil one tries to distract us. When he confronted Jesus three different occasions, Jesus responds with what? The word of God. God looks at sin as first of all an affront to him, not to us. You know, the people wanted a king, just like all the other nations, the Bible says. Listen, what I find interesting is that God doesn't lecture Samuel on his parenting skills or lack thereof. Did you notice that? Not, not right here. He doesn't, doesn't lecture him on this. But he does remind him of what's really happening. He gives him the big picture. Samuel, they're rejecting me, not you. What else does the life of Samuel teach us? I want you to turn to Samuel chapter 12. God is looking for hard obedience. Not word speak. Hard obedience. Not word speak. Samuel chapter 12. Samuel gathers all the people of Israel together at Gilgal, announcing Saul as the king over the nation. And in the midst of his words, he rebukes them for what he calls their wickedness, which they have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for a king. Their asking for a king is equated to great wickedness. And the people fear, especially after God thunders out of heaven, right, brings rain. They're fearful of God in Samuel at that point. That's chapter 12, verse 18. The people then cry out for Samuel to pray for them that they might not die. And they're saying the right things here. They say the right things. And I got to thinking, how often do we say the right things? We say the right things. We know a lot of the right words. But the people here are saying the right things and they're acknowledging their asking of a king as sin. Samuel reassures them, but he truthfully confronts them with God's ways. Follow with me, look at verse, starting in verse 20. Samuel says to the people, Do not fear, you have done all this wickedness. Yes, you've done it. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Oh, and by the way, he says, do not turn aside. He said, Here, here's what happens when you turn aside. For then you would go after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. Jesus in John 15 says you can do nothing apart from Christ and abiding in Christ. Samuel goes on, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Yeah, that's wonderful news, isn't it? Moreover, as for me, Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will, listen to what Samuel's going to do. I will teach you the good and the right way. I'm going to, I was reminded of this. 
I'm going to teach you the good and the right way. What's the good and the right way? It's taking God's word, letting it flow through me, and giving you exactly what God wants you to have. That's what he's going to give them. He says, only fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he's done for you. But here's the warning. If you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So what's Samuel saying here? Samuel is telling the people about God, first of all. He's telling them about God. And he's also reminding him, reminding the people that he'll not neglect praying for them. They're asking him to pray. Samuel says, I'm not going to neglect praying for you. In fact, it'd be sin for me to not pray for you. Um, I will pray for you. But at the end of the day, this is important. The people have the responsibility to walk with God. The people are being charged with holy living. The nation is the recipient of God's just warning. Fear God and obey his commandments. Hopefully this sounds familiar. This was in Deuteronomy, right? The blessings and the curses. Fear God, keep his commandments. Blessing. Disobey God. Don't reject his commandments. Curse. Blessing. Curse. This is not a new message. Samuel is God's available conduit through whom his words go forth freely to a nation who needs to hear Time and time and time again they need to hear. And listen, time and time again, you and me need to hear the same message. We need to hear the same message. That's why the Hebrew writer says in chapter 10, verse 25, we're we're to exhort one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Oh, to have a church of available conduits where God's word is welcomed, received, carried along, dispensed to others. A church that exhorts one another in this way makes it harder for the deceitfulness of sin to harden among us. That's Hebrews 3, verse 13. Free-flowing conduits receiving the word with joy, carrying it from point A to point B. Carrying it. As God calls us and delivering it to those who need to hear it. We are conduits of God's words. Listen, all of his words. Not just the favorable ones, but we are also conduits of the ones that aren't so familiar or favorite from others hearing. We are conduits of God's truth, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his justice. You see, because God hates sin. And I want to ask a question. Do we? Do we hate it? The psalmist says in 119 verse 128, He says, therefore, I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, more than fine gold. Therefore, listen, all your precepts, all, all your precepts concerning all things, I consider to be right. I hate every false way. Is that you? Do you hate what God hates? Or are you a little squishy on a few things just so that people don't get upset with you? It's a tough one. God is all about heart obedience, not word speak. The Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. A heart that loves God and his word makes himself available. He desires to be used by God in word and deed, in faith and purity and love. Words alone don't do it with God. Words alone. You see, the conduit in some ways is the receiver. We talked about this earlier. When the water of the word gets poured in, the conduit is the receiver of God's words. 
But do you know that the Bible says a receiver alone is really a deceiver? If you're only a receiver, you're a deceiver. That would also be translated into if you're only a hearer and not a doer. The Bible says you deceive yourselves. The Bible says that. That would be like getting some of the water poured in here, but it never travels anywhere. It gets in, but never gets carried anywhere. It hardly ever gets used. It never gets delivered or shared with anyone. Oh, no, we never get to that point. It comes in, and and for some, the Word of God comes in, and it's come in. Over the years, the Word of God's come in, and it keeps coming in. And we speak great-sounding words. Of course, we know the words because we've been in the church building all of our life, and we've heard all of these words. We've heard all of these sermons. We've grown up hearing the words. We're masters at reciting the words. But think of the tragedy. The tragedy when God's words just sit there. When they don't go anywhere. When they're not influencing your steps at all. When they're not motivating you at all to move forward in faith. God looks for hard obedience, not word speak. I'm going to give you one more and we're done. Hang in there. One more principle from the text. One more principle. And this principle is closely connected to the one we just talked about. You can turn to Samuel 15 for this one. God is looking at his mission, not our trophies. God's about looking at his mission, not our trophies. Saul is given an assignment in chapter 15 by Samuel. Straight from the Lord. (laughs) If we had this conduit here, this is perfect. The Lord gets Samuel, speaks his word to Samuel. Samuel carries it, delivers it to Saul. Thus says the Lord, here's what you need to be doing, Saul. See that it gets completed. Well, the mission didn't get completed at all. And yet Saul initially argues that he did what God wanted. And Samuel reminds him with these startling words, chapter 15, verse 18. Love these words. Now the Lord sent you on a mission. Saul, the Lord sent you on a mission. That's the message. Samuel rebukes Saul and tells him that to obey is better than sacrifice. He says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And he says because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king, Saul. And so Saul at this point is done as king. The presence of God is is just, he's done. He hangs on for a little while longer being the title holder of king. But really he's done in Samuel 15. And Samuel is God's conduit to communicate that hard message. We are a people, I'm convinced, but we don't like to deliver hard messages. When there's a hard message that we need to communicate, oh boy. How do we operate? What do we do with that? And we see an example here where Samuel communicates the hard message. Samuel, in fact, completes the, the, the mission that God intended for Saul. 
The king of the Amalekites was supposed to be killed along with all the inhabitants of the land. That was the mission. And Samuel calls Agag to his side and he completes the mission. Yes, in very gory detail, I have to admit. The actual text says, hacking Agag to pieces. Probably, I get the picture, right in front of Saul. Who was disobedient. He carries out the mission God gave to Saul. God wanted this done. You see, God is not so much concerned about your trophies. You, you know, Saul comes back and goes, well, look what we got. We've got. We captured the king. Woo, we captured the king. And we've got these sheep, and we're going to sacrifice them to God because this is all going to be a good thing. He's seeing all these trophies. Look at what we did. We did accomplish what the Lord wanted. No, you didn't, says Samuel. He's concerned most about the mission that he's given to you. Do you know what the mission is that he's given for you, friends, during your time here? Is there any thought during your day as to the mission God has for you, for his church, for his people? Is accomplishing God's mission on your radar at all? Have we become a people scurrying around to collect as many trophies and treasures as possible in this life? And in our pursuit of these things, have we equated the trophies as most pleasing to God? Look what I've done for you, God. Have we seen our pursuit of things as sufficient for what God has assigned us to be doing? What is the mission God has sent us on? And I believe this is a fitting conclusion for each one of us here as we come to the end of the text. God has given you and me a mission. He's given one to us. But our mission is couched in the mission God gave his son. In John chapter 17, verse 18, just before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus says, as you sent me, he's praying to the Father, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For God so loved the world, what did he do, church? He gave. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus from an early age is seen attentive to his father's business. At the age of 12, he is in the temple having conversations with the leaders about things pertaining to the heavenly father. In his ministry, wherever he went, he was intent on doing the will of the father, speaking the words of the father, proclaiming the words of the father to those who needed to hear. His food was to do the will of his father. His mission, wherever he traveled, was to see that people heard the life-giving word. They received it. They received what he had to say. Some of them did. But the Lord received from the Father the words. He carried them along to those the Father wanted him to go. And he delivered those words. Even though it cost him death on a cross. Acts 1.8 presents the mission for the church. To be witnesses to Jesus with the power that comes from on high. And the Holy Spirit comes down in Acts 2 and the power, listen, the power is now readily available, now readily available to, the, to do the work that he's given to us to do. The mission is to proclaim the glory and fame of the name above all names, church. The one to whom all knees will bow in heaven and on earth and below the earth. The mission is proclaiming the name of Jesus to all who will hear getting his word out. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the Bible says. 
How are people going to hear without a preacher? And some people say, well, this is your job, Steve. This is your job, Ralph. You're the preachers. God has called you to be the one to speak and communicate and deliver his word to those who need to hear. Every single one of you here have a sphere of influence. And every single one of you, I gather, have someone in that sphere of influence who has not yet heard the truth of the gospel message. If there was ever a free-flowing conduit that walked this earth, Jesus would be the example, wouldn't he? And just as he walked, we are called to walk. If we say we abide in Christ, we are called to walk like Christ. And so as God pours his words into us and he's given to us his spirit, we are to stick to the mission and stop trying to collect our own trophies along the way. God isn't impressed with your gadgets, with your trinkets that you distract. They distract us. All these things distract us from his mission. So the question comes, are you an available conduit for God's work? Is there a repentant heart in place ready to be poured out to God? God is waiting yet today, I believe, to use some other conduits, just like Samuel. Men and women, young and old, who are prepared and ready to receive, ready to receive the word, ready to carry the word, ready to deliver the words of God to a spiritually barren nation even yet today that we live in. So who is ready to give God their very best? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word in the life of Samuel teaches us so many things. Father, I pray you would help us to be available, regardless of what our age might be. Help us to see that you're looking at repentance right here in the now, not looking at our history, not looking at what has happened. Help us to see sin as you see sin, as primarily an affront to you, Help us, Father, to have a heart obedience. To love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and all of our strength. To not just give you lip service. And Father, I pray that we would be most concerned about your mission given to us and not the trophies that we might try to pile up on our own. Father, I pray like Samuel that each one here would be available conduits through whom your word can flow freely to a nation that even now in 2016 still in many ways needs to desperately hear the truth of your word. May we be the vessels and the channels and the conduits to get your word out. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.